Well, good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? You know, for the 11 o'clock crowd, you don't sound very awake. Uh, as Josh said, we are in this series where for, the, for four weeks uh, that's about really this idea of looking at vignettes from the life of David, stories out of his own life. David was the second king of Israel, and my hope is that in this time together, we will figure out changes we need to make in our life so that when we are blindsided, when the unexpected happens in our life, whether it's because of people or just circumstances in our life, that we'll figure out a way that we can respond to those things in a way that's consistent with our faith. After David kills Goliath, he becomes this instant folk hero in Israel. And people began to just praise him about his victory over Goliath, over battles he had led. And the more they sang David's praises, the more it angered Saul. He just got worse and worse with his anger until at last, he finally just goes crazy. And he tries on multiple occasions to kill David. David doesn't retaliate. He just runs sometimes for short periods, but now he is where we find him this morning. He is in this long period of years where he's living in the wilderness. He's hiding from Saul as he continues to hunt David down. Now, I read the stories and I go, I don't think David was really all that good at hiding. Because if you read, what happens is as soon as he goes in hiding, he's joined by his mom and dad. If your mom and dad can find you and you're a seasoned warrior, you're not hiding all that well. Then all of his extended family joins him. And then a few at a time, soldiers and their families who believe in David and his kingship that's going to come start to join until at this point of the story, he's got 600 skilled soldiers. It is hard to hide a thousand people. It really is. And so... David has a small army, and he's got to figure out a way for everybody to survive. In the area where they were, there were lots of wealthy landowners who had sheep and goats, massive flocks and herds, and they were vulnerable to pillaging. So David agreed with his soldiers that they would serve as bodyguards, basically, for the shepherds as they took care of these flocks for these wealthy landowners. It's not very rewarding work for a soldier, but it paid the bills, so they did it. Now in 1 Samuel 25, we find David and his men working for a very wealthy landowner who the Bible says had a thousand goats and 3,000 sheep. He was a very wealthy landowner. His name was Nabal. Now, my family all grew up in Appalachia and they always pronounce this Nabal, right? It's the way I grew up hearing it. And, you know, it was... Connie and I were talking about this yesterday, and, you know, she said, well, they would have actually said it. Well, his name was Nabal, (laughs) mocking both of our families, uh, for which she has prayed for forgiveness. But I tell you that to say, I'm going to call him Nabal, and I'm going to call him Nabal. It's the same dude all throughout the story. Just extend a little grace. So his name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. And I love the contrast in their personalities here, where the Bible says she is an intelligent, beautiful woman who made one mistake in her life. She married a surly, mean man. And he was mean in all of his dealings. Twice a year, all the landowners would bring their sheep and goat in from their wanderings and feedings. 
and they would shear them. Take the fleece and then sell that off to be carted into wool and made into garments. It was a massive payday for these landowners. And the custom was that the owner would set aside a portion of what they were paid that day. And they would give it to those who had protected both the animals and the employees. It was kind of like our custom of tipping your waiter. There's not really a law that says you have to. It's just a nice way to say, thanks, you did a great job. And that's what they expected of Nabal. So it's shearing time. For Samuel says that David sends 10 young men, 10 soldiers, to remind Nabal about their arrangement and to collect whatever he's going to pay them. So these young men are in front of Nabal. They're very polite. They don't demand anything. In fact, they very politely ask, please give your servants and your son David whatever you can find for them. Anything will be fine. And they wait. And they wait. And finally, Nabal gets around to answering David's servants. He goes, hey, who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? I mean, there are a lot of servants breaking away from their masters these days, right? And why should I take my bread and my water and the meat that I've slaughtered from my shearers and give it to men who are coming from who knows where? So... Nabal is mean and dishonest in his dealings, and this is a great example of that. True to form, he reneges on the agreement. He denies knowing who David is. He denies the fact that these men have been sent by David. And so David's men just turn around and go back to David. And when they arrived, they reported every word. David wasn't expecting this at all. It truly blindsided him. And as we will see in this story, David is instantly furious. And I think there was just one thought in his mind that was driving his next steps, that was driving his behavior, and it was this. How do I get even? So David's problem is our problem. His dilemma is our dilemma. What do we do when we're wronged? What do we do when we've been cheated, lied to, lied about? How do we respond when we are deeply hurt and without warning? The dominant narrative of David's day was really simple. If you hit me, I'll hit you back. You kill my dog, I'm going to kill your dog and your sheep and your goats and maybe your cattle just to teach you not to ever mess with me again. And so that's the culture of David's day, but that's not been David's story. He's been the champion of patience and self-control until now. David, here's this report from what happened, and he says to his men, strap on your swords, boys. And David straps on his. And about 400 of David's men went to pay Nabal a visit, and 200 stayed back and watched all their supplies. Nobody puts a sword on to have a discussion, right? He was about to up the ante. We've got a really good idea of what's going through David's mind here. It's out of character for him. This is not at all like the young boy who stood in front of Goliath and proclaimed, the Lord is my strength. The young boy who had no confidence in military prowess or power. 
Showing patience and restraint are not really appealing options to many of us when we've been wronged by someone. Our natural urge is to try to get even. And that seems just. It seems fair to get even. But it seldom solves anything. Fortunately, one of Nabal's servants heard all of this, and he went to tell Abigail, Nabal's wife. David sends messengers from the wilderness to give our master his greetings, but he hurled insults at them. The servant then begins to validate David's character and the character of his men and how they took care of them for months. He says, these men were very good to us. They didn't mistreat us. And the whole time we were out in the fields near them, nothing went missing. They didn't go into our tents and steal personal property. They didn't take even a sheep or a goat to feed themselves while they were with us. Night and day, they were a wall of protection around us. The whole time we were herding our sheep near them. And then this servant flips from telling the story to pleading with Abigail and says, now think it over and see what you can do because disaster is hanging over our master and his whole household. And he's such a wicked man that no one can talk to him. Now, Abigail's a really smart woman, as scripture says, so she acts quickly. She prepares this massive feast, this food uh, starts with 200 loaves of bread and baskets and baskets of fresh fruit and dried fruit and meat and wine. And she sends all of this with her servants to David to try to intercept him before he actually gets to where Nabal is throwing his party. And so they go and she goes a distance behind them. And wisely, she didn't tell any of this to her husband Nabal. Not going to appreciate her efforts to save him. So she then comes riding her donkey into a mountain ravine, and there were David and his men descending towards her, and she met them. The Bible gives us an insight into what's going through David's mind from the moment he strapped on his sword until he gets to this point. It says, David had just said to his men, this has been useless. All my watching over this fellow's property in the wilderness, wilderness so that nothing was missing, he's paid me back evil for good. That's a powerful phrase. We get a sense that David has just been simply telling and retelling this offense on however long this journey was. His anger, his fixation on this wrong is consuming him. And finally, he says what his plans are and what's on his mind. May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave one male alive of all who belong to Nabal. He's going to up the ante. He's going to let loose all of his pent-up rage and slaughter hundreds of innocent men who've done nothing to David. And if you don't hear anything else this morning, here's one of the biggest lessons out of this story. When we're blindsided, it's easy to respond in anger. But I promise you, anytime we act out of anger, we will regret it later. Thank God for Abigail in this story. She is the true hero of the entire story. She's been described as intelligent and beautiful, and now we see that that is an accurate description of her character. She lives up to it. It is important to understand before we see what she says and what happens that David really doesn't have any authority at this point. David has been anointed as the future king, but he is not yet king. And he will not be king until Saul is dead. And there are no guarantees that Saul will die before David does 
especially with the life he's being forced to live right now. He has no authority, no power. And Abigail, she is the wife of a very wealthy landowner in Hebron, one of the most important areas in all of Israel. She probably at this point has more power and authority than David does. And in spite of her power, her influence, her wealth, Abigail chooses to humble herself before David. She shows him the respect and the honor that would only be due a king. She gets off her donkey. She bows down, puts her face in the dirt as she is speaking to him to show her humility. She calls David her Lord, the title for the king. She calls him that 15 times in two short paragraphs. And every time she refers to herself, she simply describes herself as David's humble servant. She is a brilliant negotiator. And she starts now to encourage David to try to find another way. She speaks to him as though he is already king. She speaks to him and encourages him to be the king that people would follow, to be the kind of king that she would follow. Here's what she says. Please forgive your servant's presumption. The Lord your God will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my Lord. Because you fight the Lord's battles and no wrongdoing will be found in you as long as you live. And even though someone's pursuing you to take your life, she knows all about Saul's plans and attempts to kill David. In spite of that, the life of my Lord will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. It's a beautiful phrase. But the lives of your enemies, he will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. It's a great callback to David standing in front of Goliath. Back to the time when he was completely dependent on God. She's an amazing woman. She goes on to say, When the Lord has fulfilled for my Lord every good thing he promised concerning him and has appointed him ruler over Israel, my Lord will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or having avenged himself. It's like she's playing this Jedi mind trick with David, right? And you kind of picture her looking at David and just going, this is not the battle you're looking for, you know? It almost has that effect on David. She convinces him that he's about to blow it all. And he responds to Abigail. says, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you today to meet me. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. And then she, he promises her, he says, you can go home in peace. I've heard your words. I've granted your request. Well, then Abigail has her own problem. She has to go back and tell Nabal what's happened, right? So she does that, and she gets to the house, and he's throwing this banquet still and says the banquet's one that's fit for a king. It also says that Nabal was in very high spirits and very drunk. And so she told him nothing until daybreak. Again, a very smart move. Then in the morning when Nabal was sober, his wife told him all these things and his heart failed him and he became like a stone. We don't get an accurate medical diagnosis here, but he had like a stroke or a massive heart attack, slipped into a coma, and 10 days later, Nabal dies. And when David got the news that Nabal had died, he sent word to Abigail and said, would you become my wife? 
When that word got to Abigail, the Bible says she got on her donkey, took her servants and rode straight away to David and became his wife. I'm not making this stuff up. This has to be the shortest mourning period in all of history. I mean, the body's not even cold yet. She's married to David. This is maybe a little hasty, but it's a great story, right? I mean, for everybody except Nabal, Nabal, this is a great story. The only thing missing is the words in Scripture that they lived happily ever after. I'm not so sure that happened because she ended up being one of five wives for David. But that's a different story for another Sunday. I love reading these stories in the Old Testament. They are so rich and they have so much to teach us. There are three primary characters in this story, right? Nabal and David and Abigail. And all three of them have very different responses to life situation. And it begs the question of us... Who will we be like when we're blindsided? Well, first we've got Nabal, who pays back evil for good. And the more we read of his story, the more we understand his story, his response was maniacal. He was a crazy dude. And I don't think there's anyone in the room this morning who would choose that path. I'm hoping there's no one here this morning who would intentionally return evil for good. So we're just going to set the ball off the side and ignore him. We're going to focus a little bit on David and Abigail. More, because more often than not, we choose to be like David, who pays back evil with evil. And David's story, it's just predictable. It's the way our world works, right? It's the way friends treat each other when they've been wronged. It's the way that Countries treat each other when they've been wronged. It's the way business, we just return evil for evil. And then there was Abigail, the hero of the story. Surrounded by men who've chosen evil, Abigail returns good for evil. Her response, her judgment, her negotiation, it's remarkable. She's an incredible woman. Those are the three characters. Which one do we want to be like? Let me ask you three questions to help you think about that. First, where in your life are you leaning towards getting even? Who is it that's hurt you so deeply in your life that all you want is to make them hurt too? probably a fair number of you in the room that have a face that you're looking at right now in your mind. You have a situation that you're thinking about. But I'd say the majority of us here can hear that question and go, yeah, I got nothing. I'm not trying to get even with anybody. I'm good. That's what I thought when I was working on this this week until God said, you need to dig a little deeper. So I'm going to ask you to do the same thing. Dig a little deeper. Is there a situation in your life where you've been hurt, mistreated, offended, and for some reason that keeps finding its way into your conversation on a regular basis? And when you begin to talk about it with friends or family, you notice that the cadence of your speech picks up a little bit. You feel the emotions start to rise feel a little flush in your face as you talk about it. It's a good sign our anger is building up. And if we don't deal with that, 
it can lead us to a place where our thoughts turn to revenge. So if you could repay evil for evil, like David did or was about to do, where would that be? Second question, what's the story you want to tell when this is only a story you tell? This whole event that's got you troubled and upset, where in this whole situation where you feel like you've been wronged is over and done. And years from now, when you tell this story, what's the story you want to tell? It's the question basically that Abigail asked David. She spoke to his future. She said to him, is this the story you want to tell when you become king? You want people to think that the only reason that you became king is because you slaughtered innocent people until you beat them into submission and they finally said, fine, be our king? Do you really want that story? Do you want that on your conscience? It's a great question. What's the story you want to tell when this is only a story you tell? How we respond to life's toughest situation dramatically impacts the arc of our story. And it begs us in those tough times to deeply consider, do I want to live a predictable story of evil for evil, or do I want to live a remarkable story? And if we want remarkable, then it requires us to think of a different ending than the one we might be thinking of now. And it begs the third question. What would it look like for you to return good for evil? Now, if you're here this morning and you are a Christ follower, if you've come into the family of faith and you're like doing your best to follow Jesus, this isn't an optional exercise. You don't get to take a pass on this one. This is an integral part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. When you think about him or her or them, when you think about your employer, your friend, your neighbor, your kid, your parents, your spouse, your ex, in that context, in that relationship, what would it look like for you to begin to return good for evil? It's a lot easier for us to just simply ignore the person, to be neutral about them as best we can. And that's not a bad choice. When we do nothing in spite of what they deserve, that's mercy and that's good. But when we choose to do something they don't deserve, that's grace. And that's always going to be hard. But let me suggest to you this morning that returning good for evil may be the most Christ-like thing you ever do in your life. This is a real simple story with a lot of meaning. In fact, it had a ripple effect for a thousand years. Roll forward to a thousand years later when the Apostle Peter is writing to a group of Christians And they are receiving evil for the good they're doing. They're loving the poor. They're caring for the sick. They're just doing their best to follow Jesus and live as he lived. And in return, the government is hunting them down, prosecuting them, beating them, and in some cases, killing them just for following 
Jesus. Listen to what Peter says in these instructions to those Christians. He says, don't repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, evil with good. Because to this you were called. When you accepted Christ, this is the calling you accepted. You accepted the role that you'll play in this world as returning good for evil because of Jesus. And you do this so that you can inherit a blessing. And then, then, Peter quotes Psalm 34, written by David, most likely around the point when this incident with Abigail happened. And here's what David writes. Whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. We can choose to do evil for evil. Just revenge, payback, get even. And that choice for us can fall within the legal limits of what our laws allow. But when we do that, that's predictable. It's the way most people operate, regardless of whether or not they have a faith in God. I can understand that it's difficult to abandon this choice of getting even, to just not pay the person back, to just let it go, especially when we've got friends and family who are encouraging us to get even. If I'm totally honest, as I was thinking about this this week, I realize there are a couple of people in my life that if it weren't for the grace that I've received from God and the life he's called me to, I'd just love to rain down terror and pain on them for the things they've done to people I love. But I don't. I can't. That's not the life that Jesus has called me to. Or you either. I encourage you this morning, don't write a predictable story. Take a different path. Choose the Abigail way when you're blindsided. When you'd rather get even, choose the Abigail way. Choose to repay evil with good. Choose grace instead of revenge. Choose to do something for them that they do not deserve and they cannot earn. Choose grace. And I promise you, if you do, it will make your story remarkable.